and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. My name is Mr. Craigers, and I'm going to be one of your hosts this evening. That over there is my lovely co-host, Miss Mel. Say hello, Miss Mel. Hi. <laughs> and tonight is episode 60, in which Woo. we are going to cover the horror noir, the black horror the history of african-american horror in honor of black history month yay yay which is almost over now i yeah, guess yeah we we had a little bit of a schedule kerfluffle but thing like february is so short it is well this is i think the first year that it actually felt as short as you expect february to be you know yes Normally it takes forever. Yeah, because you're always like, oh, it's the shortest month. It'll fly by. And really, it's only two days shorter, mm-hmm. so you don't really feel it. <laughs> Does it, though? Yeah. Not really. But no, I think it flew by this this time. Yeah. And it's been um, relatively um, weather appropriate. Yeah. I guess, which is interesting well, the groundhog get... said it's supposed to be in early spring but i don't know how. oh did that. he yeah but i'd freaking it's supposed to as you said shit ice tomorrow so i don't yeah, know it is so i don't i don't really know so <laughs> groundhog <laughs> which this is the first time i've ever watched that live that groundhog day thing and um okay. they're insane these people yeah oh they go all out i was they literally and i took a snap of it because it was at the gym and i saw the um you know, the closed captioning, and it said, um, all hail groundhog supremacy is what these men in, in top hats and coats were saying as they simbud this groundhog. Phil. <laughs> yeah, so I don't... And then when they were pulling him out, they were just chanting, they were going, Phil, Phil, Phil. Like, they were chanting. It was... And, and I'm hearing this thinking of, like, Phil the future, because I think they did that in the theme song. <sighs> oh, my God, yes. Oh, my God! <laughs> Anyway. Omen. Yes. Raviv. Didn't they like cancel the show because he was going to come out and they were like, that, well, no, we can't have that. Maybe. I just know they canceled the show suddenly. It's quite yeah. possible that's what it was. But, um, yes, Raviv. And it ended so sad. Yeah. He like what went back to the future and stuff. What was his friend's name? But like, he, like they were in love with each other. I forget her name, but I know she was played by a Machalka sister. Hmm. I think it's Ali Machalka is who played her. Yeah, that was a good show. Yes, it was. Classic Disney Channel. Mm-hmm. Nice Kim Possible and other things. <clears throat> Oh, yeah. Are you all jazzed for the Kim Possible? I am. But they didn't take my casting recommendations, so, like... Oh. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever. Well, uh, before we start talking about the history of black horror, shall we do horror headlines slash what have you been watching reading updates? Um, yes. I finished the Bachman books. Yay! Um, the Long Walk was really good. Yeah, really good. Was that um, your favorite of I, the four? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I definitely liked that one. Um, I read the Limetown prequel, which, you know, is basically catered to fans of the podcast. Um, somewhat interesting. Uh, definitely 
enriches the mythology, I guess, as it were, and stuff. Um, but it's at points kind of hard to follow because it's told in two different timelines. Um, what else? Uh, oh, it started killing Eve. That's not really horror. It's more like spy thriller, but... Horror-adjacent. Horror-adjacent. Everyone needs to... Oh, and I watched Annihilation, and I haven't shut up about it basically since I watched it. It was really good, you guys. <laughs> Would recommend everyone go watch Annihilation. Still have to see it. Yeah. I'd like to finish all three books first. Um, yeah, I mean... Yeah, because, I mean, the, the movie takes... It, like, all... It takes all three books... Um, and yeah. puts them together to create, like, the most complete version of the story, which is, like, necessary, so that makes sense. Um, but it was really good. Yeah. Um, what else? I think that's it. I didn't see... I haven't seen Happy, Happy Death Day to You. I did. Yeah. Or Happy Death Day. Is that what it is? Happy Death Day to, to or Happy Death Day to You? To you. Okay. I couldn't tell if I was thinking of happy birthday to you. <laughs> um, but you did, so tell us about it. I did, and it was a fun, wild ride, just like the first one. Incredible. Um, uh, again, it's not supposed to be as good as it is. <laughs> like, it just shouldn't. Um, but, <laughs> and they take really fun twists and turns with it right from the jump and all the way through to the ending. Like if you were to just, if I were to describe like how it ends to you now, you'd be like, what the fuck? How do we get there? But it works. It's, and it's a fun journey. They, they toned down a little bit of the slasher element to up a somewhat different angle, but it works. Mm hmm. Um, so if you were a fan of the first one, I completely recommend it. It's a lot of fun. Nice. <clears throat> I would like to do it. Um, will I have time? Who knows? <laughs> to say? This Who is a busy, busy week, two weeks. Yeah. But I will eventually get around to it. If nothing else, Mr. Kruger's will make me watch it some random day that I'm over yeah. at his apartment. <laughs> Just like, just like the first one. Just like the first one. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is kind of the lull period for that sort of thing. Happy Death Day to you being an exception. Yeah, and The Prodigy's out right now. Oh, yeah. I heard mixed things about that. Yeah, me too. Um, I figured watching the trailer was like, it's either as good as it looks or it's terrible. And based on when it comes out, I feel like it's probably terrible. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so weird because I feel like it's like some people are trying to reclaim the law period. Mm -hmm. Like, Get came out in February last year. Yeah. And so I feel like people are trying to change that, but most of us longtime horror people are just so, like, we're so used to January in particular and February being the dead months that I feel like we're reluctant to yeah. to consider uh, is anything released right now really going to be all that good? But. Yeah, because it's one of those things where it's like, well, I'm not sure what it's going to be like, but I'm going to take factor this into like 
my thought process about it if it comes out between January and March. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It changes the thought process, whether that's justified or not. Yeah. Um. What else? What else? Um. Oh, I also saw Unsane. Oh, I've been meaning to see that since forever. Foy, yeah, the one that was like filmed on an iPhone. Yeah. Um. It's it's what it's what you expect. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. It's one of the, like asylum horror. Yeah. Well, and it seemed like again like one of those things that was more about the vehicle and the medium than it was about yeah. content. Yeah. They're so. not. I mean, she is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but you know. Yeah. Um, and I watched a uh, a movie, a fun movie on Shutter called "You Might Be the Killer." I might be the killer. <laughs> you, um, which is sort of like a Final Girls um, scream hybrid, mm. uh, Cabin in the Woods mixed in there a little bit. Um, this guy at a camper he's being chased by some some slasher who has killed off all the all the counselors and he calls his best friend who works at this like horror nerd shop and he's like help i'm being chased by this killer and she's like okay walk me through it and he's (laughs) telling her some stuff you know that we see in flashback and she's like wait i think you might be the killer (laughs) It's just like this satire parody homage to uh, like Friday the Thirteenth and Sleepaway Camp, and it's really fun. So Wait, I, remember, I think you might be the killer. You might be the killer. You liar. Um, and the friend, his friend is uh, the friend is what's her face from Buffy and How I Met Your Mother. Oh, Allison Hannigan. Yes, yes, and. Nice. Um, Guy is um, is like the nerdy stoner from Cabin in the Woods. Yes. Yeah. I don't got a name for you, but yes. So it was fun. Fun movie. I recommend that as well. Nice, nice, nice. Um, in terms of news, I feel like all kinds of stuff is being turned into a TV show lately. Um, yeah. Vampire Chronicles. Are you afraid of the dark? Um, the terror is getting a second season. Oh, now that I finished the book, I should watch that. Yeah. Right. Um, Lost Boys is becoming a TV series. Guillermo del Toro is doing 10 after midnight with Netflix. Um, interesting. Yeah. Everything's being turned into a TV. Well, you know, we're in that age of streaming, so I feel like it's more open, you know, like it's a lot easier for things to get made into TV shows now. Yeah, you know, which is both good and bad, I suppose. Um, right. I mean, there's a lot of good horror TV out there right now. Yeah, I know. I, I was very wary of Hill House and it turned out to be like the greatest thing. So, so, so solid. So. All right. Are we ready to talk about the history of black horror? Let's do it. Okay. Well, so, yeah, since we're not talking about any particular film, there's no trailer to take a listen to. Um, but we, we are the trailer. Yeah, so... So I guess before we get started, I just want to say, as, like, a um, disclaimer, mm-hmm. we're going to talk a little bit about the history of black horror in this episode. 
we are both white. Yes. And are not in any way uh, the experts to talk about the black experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there. Yes. Um, and I think kind of in regards to that, it's why we've chosen to um, sort of frame our discussion by looking at the new Shutter documentary, Horror Noir. Yes, yes. Um, in which, and I will say too, even watching that, like, there's things obviously I never even thought about because that's not my experience. But like things that right. were brought up, I was like, oh wow, this is very educational. So I recommend everyone watch it. Yeah, it's great if you love horror, if you love um, sociology, history, yeah, film, black studies. Um, take a look. So. Um, so that's kind of, I think, how we'll frame our discussion, um, sort of, and how that this documentary has framed the discussion, which is all made and conducted by uh, black filmmakers and scholars and performers, mm-hmm. which was really, really cool. So, um, the history of black horror as the documentary points out, really starts with a film that isn't exactly considered a horror film by genre tropes, but is horrifying to watch now, which is uh, D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. Um, One of the earliest uh, feature-length films ever. Um, And if you ever took a a film class in college um, or know a little bit about cinema, you have probably heard of Birth of a Nation because as uncomfortable as it is to watch now, it was very influential for the, the course of, mm-hmm. of cinema at the time. Um, and it's so uncomfortable now because it's basically a propaganda film for the KKK. Yeah. It was based on a novel called The Klansman, so... So that would do it. Yeah. Um, it concerns... Uh, the story fo- focuses on... Um, uh, Post-Civil War South. Um, it features white actors in blackface. Um, chasing after white women. And uh, the day is saved like by, by the Klan. I mean, straight up. They're in the robes. They've got the hoods. They're the they're they're heroes of this movie, unquestionably. Mm-hmm. So this film, though, white audiences wouldn't have considered it a horror film at the time. Black audiences certainly would. Yeah. Um. And I think. This is where a lot of the the large majority, really, of the history of black horror Mm -hmm. and what they worked through through the decades and what they had to fight against in black cinema and what they're kind of reclaiming, it all started because of this one movie. Yeah. Well, this was... So was this... When did this go? 1915. So it was yeah. three hours long, and you would know better than me, like, 
how many films before this were what we would consider feature length? Not, not very many at all. Yeah, so it was kind uh, of like the, the first one of the first full films. Yeah, the very first feature length film was The Great Train Robbery mm -hmm. in 1903, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, so this is not that much that much later. Yeah. Um, and and cinema itself is still so young in 1915, right? It's only been around for 19 years, almost 20 years. And this, I mean, this film was monumental. It was screened at the White House. Ugh. Woodrow Wilson showed it at the White House. He gave a statement on how important it was for like this new medium. So if, if film was still so fresh. And the fact that this movie was so influential was obviously very, very damaging because it was reflective of such terrible, terrible racist ideals. Mm -hmm. And what we get from this movie, among many things, is the idea, or not the idea, the idea existed before this, but the image of black males lusting after white women. Mm -hmm. And we see that play out not always directly, but subversively and symbolically in all kinds of horror from King Kong all the way through to Candyman. So that I think is one of the huge takeaways um, for Birth of a Nation. And of course, uh, the, the negative stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you actually seen in your film classes Birth of a Nation? Yeah. Uh, I think it was... I think it was intro to, intro to film. We watched it. Interesting. Yeah. We talked it, about it in the one I took, but we never watched it. I don't know if we watched the whole thing. I don't think anyone has three hours. So. I know. In their class. But we definitely, I mean, I definitely remember seeing the sequence where he's chasing her mm -hmm. like up into the hills and then the clan is chasing him. Yeah. Sort of like that famous chase sequence that will get shown a lot um, when the movie is referenced. Yeah. And so... So right away, right, right at sort of the birth of cinema, we have really um, negative portrayals of black people on screen that they're going to have to fight against. Unsurprising, given the time, mm -hmm. but, it, but it's there. And as one of the commenters in the documentary said, um, it made it made sense to them because black history is black horror. Yes, yes, I remember them saying that. And you know, lynchings, forced kidnappings, rape, murder. I mean, the history of black people in this country is horrifying. Yeah. So it made it makes sense to a lot of black people that this is how. Um, this is how their history in cinema begins. But 
also interestingly enough, right from the beginning, we also have people starting to fight back um, in very early filmmaking, including two important directors, Oscar Michaud and Spencer Williams. Oscar Michaud was probably the very first black director to start fighting back against how black people were portrayed in film. He wanted to inspire um, black creators in Hollywood and white creators as well, not to give in to the stereotypes that had been established by society and by birth of a nation and to try and portray uh, black people as they really were. Mm-hmm. And so he was very influential. He inspired another director, Spencer Williams, who made an important film called Son of Ngagi. Oh, yes. Yes. Which was a sequel to a film, Ngagi, made by a white director in which we we had this sort of half-man, half-ape creature that was the monster figure, very clearly coded as, as black. And so Spencer Williams responds and he makes son of Ngagi, which we might think of as the first black horror film, mm-hmm. a black made black starring, black produced, what have you, uh, to, to fight back against that. And this film was incredibly important because it's the first time a number of things happen. Um, it's the first time that the black middle class is shown in film. This is 1940 when this happens. Before before that, you know, portrayals of black people portray them living in poverty and rags and what have you. Um, the protagonist of the film is also a uh, black female scientist. Yes, yes, a STEM, a a, a black woman in STEM. Yeah, that's, that's how she refers to it, right? Yeah, which that's monumental for 1940. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. That's huge. Um, I feel like, unfortunately, that's probably still fairly big now to see that sort of thing. You know, like we just like we we never get to see um, women of color in in main roles in scientific educational yeah. STEM roles. So even in nineteen forty, like no, you're nuts. right. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, of uh, hidden figures. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's it. Right. Is like, that's the big one that comes to mind. And And it's a film literally about a group of historical black women in STEM. Like it's a biopic. Like you never get, I feel like people don't make fictional portrayals um, of women of color in STEM roles. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. So that totally challenged the depiction that had, that people had seen until that time. And through Son of Ngagi, Williams is able to set up the platform for um, basically all modern uh, black cinema, um, or or at least black horror cinema. So instead of um, being confined to the stereotypes, there's now a movement to break free and portray black people as intelligent and capable and heroic Mm -hmm. but i mean let's not kid ourselves the majority of how black people were still portrayed in the 30s and 40s was as servants or Mm -hmm. in some sort of um 
servile role. And then this is really interesting, and they kind of gloss over it a bit in the in the well. I mean, they don't gloss over it; they give people provide an explanation for it. But I wonder if there's more we can tease out of there. In the fifties, mm-hmm. it's almost as if black people disappear from horror and cinema entirely. Yes, because they said after this is kind of when you get the the resurgence of. I guess maybe it started in the thirties, but like the universal monsters kind of take over and basically there are no black roles in those films uh not even it's not even that it's it's actors still doing blackface or anything like that there are just no black roles whatsoever Um, and i remember at one point one of the filmmakers in the documentary mentioned she was like at first you know it was we were in films but white people were playing us and then suddenly we weren't in films at all yeah yeah, which is so interesting, and I mean, I guess I guess it's not interesting, right? Like if we like we know why. Like you know, it was everybody was racist in the fifties. Yeah, everybody's racist now. Um, but it's it is interesting that it seemed like there was this foothold that they were starting to gain as much as. It had to be clawed and fought for. Mm-hmm. And I almost wonder if it was like, if like white Hollywood saw that and then was like, no. Yeah. And shut it down. Yeah. Because even though we don't see black people on screen in the 1950s, uh, there's still a presence in cinema. And that is where the the discussion about how all of the um, sort of atomic age monsters Mm -hmm. of 50s horror were attributed with a lot of stereotypical black features to code them as black. Yes, the the bringing up of the um, the creature from the Black Lagoon, that's something I never, I obviously never thought about being, you know, a white person who watches film. Um, But no, when that, that came up, I was like, oh, it didn't even occur to me that these sort of like, even these like inhuman creature type, you know, creature features essentially like harken yeah. back to like they are designed in such a way that it recalls stereotypical depictions of, in most cases, black males. Um, yeah. And something I never thought about because, you know, I'm. Oh, yeah. I've never, you know, I'm privileged and never had to. Um, which is, again, why I think everyone should watch this documentary. <laughs> yes, it's so good. It's so good. No, I, I'm completely with you because, like, you know, when they were talking about, um, like, King Kong and Ngagi and stuff or whatever, like, yeah, I, I like, I, I got that and had read and knew about that before, but, because you know, there's a very ugly history of coding black people as being ape-like, mm-hmm. monkey-like. But, yeah, but, like, the creature from the Black Lagoon and sort of connecting things to the atomic age and how they were, the monsters were meant to be a stand-in for blackness, I was like, oh, yes. Now I see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, which was cool to to be exposed to this new line of thinking. Um, because yeah, you know, as they bring up in the documentary, the fifties were all about the, the fleeing supposedly to suburbia. Right? Yeah. To yes, escape, yes, yes. To escape urbanoia, and um, the people that could afford to do that were white people. Yes. It was very, very interesting. 
But then we get to, and this happens throughout most of, of the 60s uh, as well, until 1968 rolls around and we get one of the most influential horror films of all time, Night of the Living Dead. Dun, dun, dun. I did watch that in my film class. Yay. Yes. Of course I did. It was a film class at Pitt. Of course they're going to. <laughs> did you know it was filmed here? Did you know? Pittsburgh's native son, George Romero. Um, and so, if you don't know Night of the Living Dead, uh, go watch it. Yeah. It's, it's public domain. You don't have to pay for it. And if somebody that. makes you pay for it, you're a sucker. You can scam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Copyright thing, they, they screwed it up. So we're just going to assume, for the purposes of our discussion, that everyone listening is familiar with Night of the Living Dead. So I thought it was a really interesting um, discussion point that they brought up in the documentary at this point was when they, one of the scholars, I think, asked... You know, who does, uh, who does Barbara fear more? The zombies or Dwayne Jones' character? Yes, yeah. Which you kind of get a sense of that watching it, that she's never, obviously she's never comfortable, but it's like she obviously doesn't want to go outside, but she just has this complete mistrust and, and tension of being in this house with a black man. Mm -hmm. um, and you know she never explicitly says anything that we would consider a racial slur like nothing like that probably because this part um, was not written as black um, but yeah like it's just you get that tension for, and he slaps her at one point and like that yeah. was a huge deal um, but yeah like it's and again like it's something like you know you think about but like hearing it put into words is like you know like what is the bigger monster for you know our heroic protagonist white woman is it the creatures trying to get outside or is it who she's trapped in the house with mm -hmm. yeah. and i i wonder now that we're talking about it and then thinking about it like i think about the fact that she barbara's like is near catatonic yeah. From the film. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if like we could even do a reading of that where, yeah, she's traumatized from seeing what happens to her brother outside, but maybe she never recovers from it because she also like can't process being in the house with a black man. Yeah. Something like that. Um, it's interesting. But... Um, so Night of the Living Dead, hugely influential for horror, but hugely influential for black horror because here we see, potentially for the first time in film, definitely for the first time in horror, a black man is the hero. Yeah. Yeah. He's not the sidekick, not the comic relief or the servant. He's in charge. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and it's interesting because you start at the film and you think, okay, it's the girl and her brother. And the brothers dispatch with fairly quickly. Um, and this guy shows up and he's clearly the one we're rooting for. Because like you said, she's completely catatonic. Like she's almost dead weight and frustrating. And he's, you know, the savvy guy. He He's the survivalist and mm -hmm. he's the hero. The hero. Like that was uh, a game changer. And, you know, we think about the fact that this movie was released in 1968. Um, if you know 
if you know anything about the 60s in America, it was one of the most turbulent decades ever. Um, assassinations, riots, violence, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, protests, um, drugs for days. Drugs. <laughs> on drugs. For years. And in a way, this film was so much a culmination of all of that um, playing out on the screen. And so when Dwayne Jones's character dies at the end in a very um, coded way, though supposedly it wasn't, um, that the symbolic, I don't think we can overstate the the symbolic impact of that. Which, like, you know, and they say, like, yes, the character wasn't written black. Um, it just so happened that he was the best actor who showed up that day. And, you know, that, I, I believe that. But I also think, like, you know, is it possible that the, because it's not even that it's, like, so much scripted a certain way, the way he dies. It's like, you know, they, they kill him and then they talk about, you know, burning his body and stuff with the other zombies. And, um, it's the credit pictures that you see of them, like, afterwards. Like, the images of them, like, hanging up the zombie bodies and stuff that seemed, you know, like, an addition. Like, you know, after the fact, somebody realized that, and it wasn't just incidental. Um, you know, the way they, they went about it. And I was thinking, while listening to them talk about it, in the way that, like, you know, it becomes that the zombies and, and sort of represent black people to this, you know, frail, frightened white woman, um, made me think of, uh, um, Janelle Monae and the way that she utilizes, um, this like, uh, android persona in her songs and stuff. And she does it because she says to her, the android represents the other. It's something not quite human and, you know, it, it feels different and stuff. And it like made me think of that, like the way that this film, Obviously, it's different because it's Janelle Monet like owning this identity and creating it for herself and other people of minorities. But you know, is the idea of the other, and in this, you know, in Janelle Monet's case, it's empowering, and you kind of invent it yourself and, and take that back. But in this case, it's you know these outside forces of these creatures, and especially with all the stereotypes of you know um, that come later with you know the idea of like what they call the magic Negro and like the use of voodoo and that sort of thing. Like, and you think of zombies, which technically are something that comes from voodoo traditions, like, you know, know it's just an interesting thing I thought about. Yeah, it is really interesting. Yeah, I didn't think about the, um, the zombie sort of link that yeah. we should draw because yeah. this was the first time zombies were portrayed outside mm -hmm. of the voodoo origin yeah. sort of frame. Interesting. Yeah. I like that a lot, this smell. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think, <laughs> Thank and you, know And it also kind of posed the question, too, like, uh, because the film, um, the filming was nearing its end uh, when the assassination of Martin Luther King happened. Yes. They and said, they told that story. There's um, kind of this question that hangs over Night of the Living Dead. Like, did the assassination change the course of the film? Yeah, because they claim they didn't know about it <clears throat> until after they were driving 
<clears throat> the edited film to wherever it needed to go, and that's when they heard that he had been assassinated. They claim, right? Yeah, they, I think there. I think there's a question there of did they did they maybe go back or did they decide to edit it differently? Or you know, I think that's that's interesting to ponder. Um, with Romero dead, however, we'll never yeah. know. So Night of the Living Dead. Huge, huge for horror, huge for black representation in horror. And Dwayne Jones's appearance as the hero sparks an era um, in black horror that one of the scholars, I think, put it best, um, doesn't necessarily get full marks. Yes. <laughs> the, the good intent was there. And that is the black exploitation era. Yes fits nice and neatly into the 1970s. Um, so, for those that don't know, black exploitation is a portmanteau of black and exploitation. These were films that were made um, super low budget, marketed explicitly towards black people. Um, and the surgeons of black audiences that were going to movie theaters to capitalize on um, this newfound, so to speak, interest. As if suddenly black people weren't interested in movies until, you know, 1970. It's just like, no, they just want to see themselves on screen. Like the yeah. Rest of the yeah. Oh. Yeah. So... Now, why doesn't it get full marks? Well, I think one of the big reasons that they talk about a lot is that, yeah, there's there's way more black people in movies now, way more black films for black audiences, but the representations um, aren't still quite fully fleshed out. We're really just seeing new stereotypes. Yeah. Uh, the pimp is one of the big ones in this era. Yeah. Um, now, we get one studio, AIP, who commits to, uh, to this, this model. They're sort of uh, the star example of what studios were doing at this time. Making lots of profit from super low-budget investments, making lots of films, churning them out. And then they hit gold with a film called Blackula. Blackula. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, as most black exploitation films tried to be but did not always succeed, was directed by and starred um, black men. And Blackula, which, if you've ever seen it, is fine, mm-hmm. <laughs> objectively speaking, was influential because of how much it inspired. Um, current and up-and-coming generations of black actors. Uh, it's also probably one of the most interesting and vastly different portrayals you'll ever see of Bram Stoker's vampire. Black. That's what he calls himself, too, in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, weird movie. Just... Not because of uh, black exploitation, but just you're just like, what is going on? Um, but but I think that was also a part of it, right? There was a camp element to it. There um, uh, and and 
some heavy, heavy horror when they wanted it to be. Um, but still constrained by these very low budgets and low investments from the studios. Now, in the sequel, Scream, Black Yellow Scream, we see the introduction of uh, a very important uh, legend in black acting, Pam Greer. Yay! Yay! And, you know, because she was this sort of sex kitten symbol, playboy type um, figure in in society at the time and in this low budget black exploitation horror film she gets to show her acting chops and she's not there to just look pretty and her her presence in that film and the agency that she's given is sort of this signal and this starting point of uh, black women starting to emerge as their own force in film and in horror uh, which is cool as shit nice 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 <coughs> excuse me now like we might expect black women immediately come up against a barrier mm-hmm. as they start getting more and more agency in films and that barrier is their association with voodoo yes and uh not just that that coupling, but in using voodoo negatively. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that's um, probably like a, that they fight against like well into well into the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit of this uh, uh, magic magical Negro trope. I think that's still, I mean, obviously all of this is still very much a thing, but um, I think you still, like, even if you look at um, holes, you know, in the middle of, uh, I guess, where he's meant to be from, Lithuania or something like that, there is a woman who, I don't know, she's a woman of color, and, you know, Madame Zeroni, she's a woman of color, and she puts a curse on this, this family, this white family. Um, so you still get it in, in modern day things that aren't even horror. That's totally true. That's a really good, really good point. Yeah. Um, so a couple interesting films from this time, Abby, uh, which showcased the fear of black women, but coupled with their sexuality. Uh, you know, Abby is sexy, but she's also completely crazy. Um, and which is a common stereotype that gets thrown around even now sugar hill is another example you know we have a a a black lead she's not constrained by men she makes her own decisions but it does you know the film is problematic in that it brings back that sort of never dormant stereotype of black men lusting after white women yeah you know that's used as a plot point and uh so Things are changing, more agency is being had, but these stereotypes are still there. These representations still aren't great. Um, I don't know why that might be. I don't know if it's like just trying to enjoy the opportunity and the 
the ability that they had to now make black films and mm-hmm. be and see themselves on screen. I don't know if it was not wanting to push the envelope too far or just figuring out what they wanted to do or being constrained by black exploitation. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the representation does not quite nail it. Um, yeah. In the 70s. There's a really interesting film that I haven't seen that they were talking about, Ganja and Hess. Yeah, um, no, I haven't seen that. Which, But by the sound of it, I would like to. It's supposed to be a slow, meditative study on black life where blood is used as a metaphor for addiction in the black community. Yes, yes, yes. I remember this. And uh, it was... They mentioned how it's influential because it features wealthy and educated and upper class or upper middle class I should say black man he's a doctor yeah he's a doctor and um, it shows us how even his well even in a wealthy and relatively privileged status um, there's still a, a great fear of the police mm-hmm. police brutality and you know that that one um, that will never go away for him, which uh, I'm sure was very important for for people to see at the time. Um, you know, so many of these in the black exploitation films, the characters are yeah, the stereotypes, right? Pimps and cops, and sort of associated with like street life and nightlife, yeah. and very rough and urban and you know, to see a doctor was um, an important step to take. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it. It evidently was not received well in America. Um, they suggest that it's because the characters were too developed and too realized. They didn't, so they didn't fit the black exploitation mold. So it was remade in 2014 by really, yeah. By, uh, Spike Lee. Oh. Yeah. It was under a different name. The remake has a different name, but it was, oh. it was remade. Interesting. Interesting. So. Um. So as the 70s went on, black exploitation sort of kept getting worse. Um, and not only in just the constraints of portrayals and representations, but also just technically from, mm-hmm. from a filmmaking standpoint, filmmaking standpoint as well. They mentioned that the film Blackenstein, um, oh, is yeah. like literally almost too dark for people to watch. Well, and they, yes. And lighting. they've not light so lighting. Yes. Not, but the subject matter, they do make that interesting point around Blackenstein that it, that it kind of is culturally influenced by the historical um, prevalence of black men being medically yeah being medically experimented on Mm -hmm. Um, and that's kind of where things like that like uh, Blackenstein and a couple other ones where and I think even they talked about Ganja and Hess a little bit in that regard just like 
black men's bodies being used without their consent for medical experiments. Right, yeah, without their, like, full knowledge, yeah, without their consent, yeah. Um, and I thought it was interesting that they make a point that, um, you know, that's a com that was a common plot point in these films, but uh, we still see it now in films like Get Out and The Girl with All the Gifts and yes. The First Purge. yes. You yeah. know, black bodies being exploited and used without um, without the full knowledge of what these people were committing themselves to. Um, so, as we might uh, expect, such poor representation eventually, of course, catches the attention of leaders of the civil rights movement, and they start fighting back and encouraging better representation in black film, of course, including black horror. They, I'm sure they did not get what they wanted from the 80s. Yes. <laughs> because the 80s, of course, we, we know well was the time and the reign of the slasher. Right? Yes. Slasher reigned supreme. They, Slasher was king in the 80s. And black people were present in slashers. However, <laughs> they were resigned to such very specific roles in slashers that we get one of the most tried and true, not so much anymore, which is good, but one of the most tried and true rules rules at the time of the slasher was, was that the black character dies first. Yes. And if not first, early. Yes. Um, and this rule became so common, you know, it became tongue-in-cheek within a very short amount of time. Yeah. In horror films, in pop culture, comedy, TV shows, like... Yeah, and they make the point. They they said it was sort of like the red shirts in Star Trek where it's like you've got these characters who are too important to die, so to create consequences, we'll just have these throwaway characters, and in many of these situations, those throwaway characters were casted as black actors. Right, and if they weren't dying first as the throwaway, then they were sacrificing themselves. Yeah, for yeah, yeah for their, their white um, companions. White. Yeah, their white companions. So it tended to be one or the other in in these horror movies from the late 70s through the 80s. Uh, they do make a point that this was not always the case, and it wasn't as common as the, um, the rule might lead us to believe. Like, they cite Alien as an example where that, that doesn't actually happen. Yeah. Um, the Thing is another example. Uh, mm -hmm. They're both alive at the end. Um, in the remake of uh, House on Haunted Hill, Tay Diggs survives until the end. Yeah, he survives until the end. Um, uh, but they say, you know, it was usually in these cases, though, where that other role was sort of being fulfilled. Or that we had to keep the black person around a little bit longer and then kill them so that we would, the audience would have a better understanding of how monstrous the monster was, mm -hmm. right? Dangerous the monster is. Um, oh yeah, that's right. Cause you would have these sort of um, knowledgeable black male characters who then when they die, you're like, Oh shit, this monster means business. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh -oh. 
Uh, yeah, so we talked about being token, being a sidekick. Um, you know, very rarely were they given wants or needs of their own. We might not be there yet, but I did like the point that was made about the craft where she was like, all my lines were, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, are you okay? <laughs> and she knew going in, she was like, I knew all my lines were going to be, are you okay? <laughs> to these yeah, white girls I was talk, acting with. Let's talk about that a little bit, right? Yeah. I mean, we're kind of, that more or less covers the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Rachel True, who plays, uh, Rochelle from the craft yep. is one of the commentators in the documentary. Yes. And, uh, she, um, well, she kind of, yeah, she kind of, uh, loops back to some of the eighties conversation stuff. Like, um, when she talks about how, uh, you know, she went the, to the director, she's like, well, what's my, what's my character's thing? Yeah. You know, right? Like, uh, the other girls all had this, like, one major thing, right? This one major issue that they were struggling about, you know? Like, because this idea that black people didn't have their own wants and needs in films. Mm -hmm. And they were, like, her, like, the character, it's it's racism. The character's struggling against everyday racism. And she's like, oh, right. That's a problem. Because it's so common for her. Yeah. It's something she deals with every day. Like she didn't realize that that was that was the thing for it um i also liked uh i don't know if she says it or if someone else is referencing the craft but that that character was kind of like the signal that um you know black people could start talking about their experiences as black people through yeah. film yeah yeah, because it was, what, it was 96, and you have these blonde, white uh, teenage girls, like, spouting racial slurs at her. And she uses, you know, this witchcraft as a way to fight back. Um, and I don't really, you know, and it's interesting because it's like you can look at it that way and taking back kind of the idea of, you know, the the voodoo queen and that sort of thing. And these, these uh, black women who would, you know, curse people or, or put spells on people. And you have this young black girl who's, you know, taking sort of witchcraft and using it to essentially get back at racists. Yeah. Yeah. But um, right around this time was... Well, this was right after it, but if we go back about four years, was one of the, a big point, a big film that they, they talk about in this documentary, which is Candyman. Candyman. Yes. Candyman, 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 Candyman. Did I do it five times? <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't counting. Uh, but Candyman, for, I, we've talked about it a few times, I think. Um, but those, yeah, but for those of you who don't know, it was a 1992 um, horror film about a, um, an urban legend of the Candyman, who they said was this spirit of a man who had been, a black man who had been um, lynched to death by a group of, of racist white men after they found out that he had a relationship and had a family with a um, local white woman and his spirit uh, because his body was was his like ashes were spread 
where this um, apartment complex, these projects are. He haunts the 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 area and goes around killing people and you can summon him by saying his name three times kind of like a bloody mary situation um and they make the point they have like a this documentary has like a love-hate relationship with this film and it's interesting because um he's the uh what's his tony face todd. tony todd is in it like he's in the documentary and he a legend yes and he talks about it uh quite a bit and how he's like you know he also seems to have some back and forth morally with the character but they make a couple points here that you know this is a character who is perpetuating the stereotype of black men lusting after white women because even though he's you know trying to murder our our leading woman he's still kind of got this like phantom the opera-esque obsession with her um there's this imagery between the two of them when he's carrying her and stuff and he you know the way he talks to her um and they also make the point that it has this huge kind of misstep where a character like this wouldn't be attacking in their minds and you know wouldn't be attacking his fellow black citizens like the the point of this is that this is a ghost this is a, a, a supernatural creature haunting a project like a project the cabrini green housing project in chicago, chicago um which is predominantly black um and like the idea is that he's killing black people, he's haunting black people. And they're like right across the tracks are the descendants of the people who did this to him, are the white people in the more affluent neighborhoods. Like, why is he not going after them? Like, why would he attack his own his own group? Like that didn't make sense. And they were like, and that's how you can tell as much as um, you know, the filmmakers, you know, wanted to to do something good with this, you know, it was still a movie made from a white lens. Yeah. Yeah. It's cause yeah, it's, you know, even with a, with a black crew and, and Tony Todd and what have you, like that, that's still there. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's definitely this, this struggle. I think that you're right. That there's a love hate relationship with it. Um, uh, you know, because on one hand, it's like, oh, this was the first black supernatural killer in a horror movie. Yeah. Um, which Jordan Peele himself says inspired him. And he was like, oh, we can do it all now. You know, like if Night of the Living Dead showed black people that they could be the hero. Candyman maybe showed them that you can be the villain and not necessarily in a. Yeah. He was like, we can be the Freddies, we can be the Jasons. And you can be a Freddy, you can be a Jason, you can be a, a horror icon, yeah. we should say. And there is something empowering in that as well. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. Boy, I don't care. Actually, Candyman is scary as shit. It is very scary, with the bees and stuff. Yeah. Um... Probably one film we can say that they don't um, what's the word what I, that they don't uh, particularly like for its changes in its portrayal of oh yes that character is The Shining yes in which um, legendary actor Scatman Crothers. Uh, who's playing 
What's his face? Oh my god. Um. Oh my god. It's gone. Scott and Brother. Yes. Whose character Dick Halloran survives in the novel is killed in the film. Yes, for some and reason. And killed in such a way where it's like, okay, how? First of all, because he can shine. So why didn't he see that coming? Yeah. And what purpose does it serve if only to heighten our terror for the white people? You know, because he he comes back to the hotel to try and save Danny and Wendy, and he's immediately offed. There's yeah. Not a struggle. There's none of that. It's just gone. Yeah. Um, and, and he's also, you know, the, the the stereotype of the magic negro, like he's, you know, the mystical right. the mystical you know, person of color who explains the the strange magic to, to the right. little white boy. And our other eighties stereotype, the sacrificial negro. Yes. Yes, yeah. who's dying oh. on the behalf of of white characters. Of white people. And um I like, you know, I think it was I don't know if it was in when they were talking about The Shining or when they were first introducing it earlier, but I liked how um, one of the commentators was like, it's such a frustrating and annoying stereotype, but yet we still see it. And she cited Annabelle. Yeah. Um, with Alfred Woodard and how she like jumped out the window or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I- Cause she was like, it was very much like a mammy type character, you know, this. Yeah. She saves a little white girl. Yeah. And I remember at the time being like, I mean, I can't claim to have been like, just to have viewed that for its not so great racial representations. But I remember being like, that is so frustrating and annoying. Why yeah. should she die for them? Yeah. Yeah. So. Anywho. Anywho. <laughs> so, so the 90s. The 90s. Candyman. Yes, yes, yes. Um, this is when Spike Lee emerges as a presence, of course. Uh, remains influential in black cinema. He remakes Gonjan Hess, evidently. <laughs> he's, uh, he's up for an Oscar, several, uh, this weekend. Nice. Um, and the 90s is kind of where black horror starts to become a lot more socially conscious and in the moment. Mm-hmm. Right than than sort of ever we've seen before. Um, Death by Temptation is a big example of this. Tales from the Hood is something that gets discussed a lot uh, in this movie. Tales from the Hood, an influential anthology film from the '90s, featuring uh, four four short narratives with one wraparound story. The tales cover topics like gang violence police brutality, racist politicians, and spousal and child uh, abuse in the home. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, made by, uh, made by Rusty Kundiff, a uh, black director featuring a black cast. These were black stories and black settings, black people. Jada Pinkett. Yeah. And it was this moment where horror, black horror, is taken in a new direction, and that direction is one of revenge and redemption and justice for like black people reclaiming that for themselves on screen because it wasn't happening in real life, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't happening um, in the 90s or now. 
Yeah. Or ever. Uh, and so Tales from the Hood became a huge cult classic, uh, very influential. Um, the sequel came out, I think, last year. Or the year before. No, I think it was last year. Um, tackling uh, more cerebral subjects, kind of. Mm-hmm. More in an everyday an everyday light. Um, and then we get another um, baller step forward for black horror and particularly for black women in horror. Mm-hmm. This comes about smack dab in the middle of the 90s, 1995, when Jada Pinkett Smith. I think she's just Jada Pinkett. Jada Pinkett at the time, <laughs> <laughs> if my memory serves me correctly, uh, stars in um, a fantastic little movie called Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, uh, which is one of the Tales from the Crypt movies mm-hmm. uh, directed by black director Ernest Dickerson. And she becomes the first black final girl. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and she beats up What's-His-Face from Titanic. Yeah, she sure does. Uh, Billy, Billy something. Billy Zane. Zane. Yeah, yeah. And I loved how in this part they talked about how um, it was the perfect setup to defy all the expectations um, because she, she doesn't die first. She's not just this random supportive best friend. She's the last one standing. Yeah. Which is baller. Yeah, good for her. And also, it would be Jada Pinkett. Yeah, right? <laughs> and I, I mean, you know, like, truly, to think about the fact, like, that there were no final girls of color throughout the whole slasher craze. Yeah. You know, that it took until the mid-90s for that to happen is is something we should keep in mind. Yeah. Uh, well, they still don't get final girls of color really at all. Not too much. They cited a couple couple examples. Um, Alien versus Predators. Yes. Yeah. The Predator. Uh, Queen of the Damned. The Girl with All the Gifts. Mm-hmm. But and as great as those are, and as important as those are, which which they are, yeah, it's it's not a lot. Yeah. It's, it's not enough. We might say. So, um, so that's, yeah, so 90s, 90s black horror tends to be very human, uh, lots of, uh, hints of the supernatural, lots of black female stories coming to the forefront as we move into the millennium, where black horror becomes, <laughs> I think it was, this is my favorite, like, comment from the whole documentary, just add Z. Yes, yeah, from all the, um... The, the influence of hip-hop. The influence of the hip-hop, yeah. And rappers just showing up in horror movies. <laughs> yes. Um, what they say, Ice Cube and Anaconda and LL Cool J and Halloween H2O. <laughs> and they're just like, you know, they started as fans. They were rapping about horror movies, and then suddenly they're in them. Yeah. Um, and here's where we get... Uh, 
a great horror movie from the early 2000s called Bones, starring the one and only Snoop Dogg. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever his name was at the time. It might have been Snoop Dogg or Doggy Dogg or whatever. Um, and Pam Greer. Pam Greer, once again, back, being badass as well. Um, this movie became very notable for the way it portrayed the love story uh, between the between the two of them um, in in the midst of in the midst of a horror movie and how Snoop Dogg's character, though he's involved in illegal activity, is also portrayed as this very like community oriented. Mm-hmm socially conscious character he gives back and, and what have you. Um, so now we're getting, now we're seeing change as we move into the 2000s, right? We're finally showing black characters with more depth, with more agency, men, women. It's good stuff. We get to an awesome little British movie called Attack the Block. Oh, John Boyega. If you have not seen it, you have to see this movie. It is so much fun. And yes, it stars uh, Finn. <laughs> Finn. I was gonna say his code, but I FN two one two one eight seven because it's detention block two one eight seven from traitor, traitor. But yes, John Boyega. Yeah, so John Boyega pops on the scene in this movie. It takes place in a working class neighborhood in London that's invaded by aliens. Um, and uh, John Boyega's character saves the day. He becomes, he's the hero. And there's this, they talk about this awesome moment at the end where everyone's cheering for him. And he realizes kind of that, like, he matters. Mm-hmm. This person. Um, <laughs> I love Attack the Block. <laughs> it's so wild. <laughs> um, so late 2000s now, that movie was, came out in 2008. As we move into the 2010s, we, as with all horror, black horror is starting to become very self-reflective, right? Mm-hmm. Now it's confronting the tropes. It's dealing with all of those things that it's been dealing with this whole time, but really confronting those, those, those stereotypes that were established by Birth of a Nation and looking at them head on and then moving forward. Um, they cite Girl with All the Gifts as a big yes. for this, um, for its feature of a black girl um, as the lead. You know, not a black woman, a black girl. And how that that character isn't written way, that way in the novel and how that changes the story, bringing in a sharper social commentary. Um, and so this is sort of the culmination of black people finally shifting from being the other to being the hero. Yes. And enter Janelle Monet and her Android. Oh, there yeah. you go. <laughs> and enter get out. Yeah. Oh my God. I forgot how creepy. I mean, I didn't forget. It's just like, I haven't seen it in a while. And that bit when she just goes sink or whatever she says, and he just falls and it's like, Oh, so school. Like clink, clink. On the yeah. So get out. It's impossible to not at least know the premise of get out. So we don't have to get into all of that necessarily, but it's a fascinating part of the documentary. They bring up some amazing points. Obviously it was a huge deal. Oscar nominated. 
uh, Oscar, Oscar winning for Jordan Peele for screenplay, major, major, major. Um, I thought it was interesting how he talked about, you know, since this movie very much came about at the transition between the presidential administrations, right? Yeah, like yeah, talk yeah. about how he had written it beforehand. It was released afterwards. It, and, um, sort of what that did, I guess, mm-hmm. for it, which I, I thought was really, really interesting. Um, because since we saw, we all saw it afterwards, we were all like, bam, it's about the fear of being black in Trump's America. Yeah. But it was written before that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, I think one of the things, one of the points it makes is that it's not even just, um, it's like a fear of whiteness, I think he is what he points yeah. out, like just period, like the fear of being in white spaces um, and feeling vulnerable because of that. And like, I remember a lot of the uh, reviews pointed out that it's also a critique on the sort of West Wing liberal, like the the affluent upper middle class liberals who, you know, are you know, vote Democrat and, you know, say things like, oh, you know, I voted for Obama and I've got black friends and, you know, who mean well, but say ridiculous, unhelpful things and kind of use their, their moral correctness as like a a way to show off and that sort of thing. Definitely. Like how, you know, we have the expectation, like everyone's expecting at least one white person to be good. Yeah. Yeah. And so Peel completely defies that expectation. And there yeah. aren't no good white people in yeah. Get Out. Yeah. Because it was, it's made for black audiences. Um, and it's made for frustrated black audiences. Like they say that are tired of watching dumb white people make dumb decisions. And yeah. Um, but what was cool, I think, or what, was at least nice for, for Peel and the other creators was um, the response of the white, of the white audience that saw the movie mm-hmm. or, or some white audiences, of course, um, that this show of sympathy that everyone was cheering for Chris, right? The, yeah. When he, when he, he of, yeah. killed what's her face at the end and was like, Oh my God, just yeah. destroy her. <laughs> And, you know, how black people finally got this moment that was a reversal of all this long history of cinema where black people had to find sympathy for white characters Mm -hmm. and cheer for them. Now, you know, they finally got to see white people finding sympathy and empathy in black characters and what a cool moment that was. And that is cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, the ending. Which is infamous. Which, and I love every time, like, they talk about how, like, his original concept was, yeah, it ended very bleak. Like, he did get arrested and all that stuff. And then he was like, no, like, I can't. Like, shoot him or something. Yeah. And he was like, I can't, we can't have another sort of, like, Night of the Living Dead instance with this. So, um, the ending, I love, I love Get Out. Mm -hmm. It's so powerful because... And just speak so much because we're all expecting something bad to happen. Yeah, I remember when I went to go see it, as soon as the cop car comes up, the entire audience just went, oh, come yeah. on. And it was a, it was an enti- probably an entirely white audience because I saw it, you know, in the Philadelphia suburbs. 
um, which is, you know, yeah. a predominantly white area. And it was just the entire audience in this movie was just like, oh, come on, this cop. Like, you know, we know, we know. I know. Like, I remember people just like groaning, like, like, fuck this cop. No, like, yeah. um, because that, heartbreaking as it is, would be the realistic and yeah. the expected. Yeah, he couldn't, he couldn't call the cops. Nobody would believe him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think Peel made the right choice because we get the hero. Um, and that moment, you know, when we re- realize it's Lil Ray Howery. Yeah. And the, that fear is shut down. That's so powerful yeah. and so funny. And so, you know, it's such a relief. Yeah. Um, that's, that's an instant iconic ending for horror. Um, so yeah. And so at this point in the documentary, uh, they kind of close out the discussion, um, with sort of a look to the future, where we're headed. Um, even just in films this year that are coming up, including Jordan Peele's new film, Mm -hmm. Us, Mm -hmm. um, which looks awesome. Have you seen the trailers for Ma as well? Ma's? No. It's interesting. I'm not sure how to feel about it yet because it's about a group of white teenagers being, um, basically what happens is, is they get invited over to, what is her name from um, The Help? The And she, she was in... Just No. Um, crap. Hold on a second. I just saw a thing for it. Um... Like Octavia Spencer? Morning. Yes, Octavia Spencer. Thank you. Um, she plays this character who um, like invites this this group of white teenagers over to um, her house. Like she's basically what happens is they go, they're like, oh, can you buy us alcohol? And she's like, no. And they're like, please. And there's like, okay, yeah. And then she invites them over to to her basement and it becomes their drinking spot but then it's like this weird thing where she's like you know partying with these teenagers and she tells them not to go upstairs kind of like a bluebeard situation and they cut they're like oh we got to stop hanging out over there and she's like you know obsessively like why do you, you know what do you why are you not hanging out with me anymore what's going on you know and like just this really creepy creepy thing creepy. yeah i don't know you know in the context of this documentary what to make of it so far yeah. Um, but it's by, um, well, it's by Bloomhouse. Um, so I don't. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Allison Janey's in it. Oh, I love her. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is interesting to see where things are going to go. Um, you know, I like that they bring up the point that I think Rachel True says it, that it seems to finally be dawning on the powers that be in Hollywood, that horror is a legitimate genre. Yes. Um, with a devoted fan base of all creeds and colors. And that uh, it's okay to open the door for black creators to tell their stories. Um, and, you know, hopefully like people will get to see themselves yeah. more, more as we, as we move forward into this crazy, crazy world of ours, kids. So that's, so that's pretty much our walkthrough through Horror Noir, History of Black Horror, which yes. you can stream now on Shudder. 
Um, really good, a lot of information, and it's not like overly exhaustingly long either. No, it's only about, it's a little less than an hour and a half, um, yeah. and it moves pretty quickly. It does. Yeah, it's super interesting. So, yeah. definite recommend. Yes. Um, this little corner, this little white corner of the world. Yes. Again. We Whose opinion really doesn't matter in the grand cannot, scheme of all of this, but. Yeah. <laughs> never presume to speak for the black experience. Um, just kind of telling you what we watched. Yeah. That's good stuff. Now, if you've seen Horror Noir, or if you're going to go watch it, which you totally should, and then you want to talk to us about it, that would be awesome. Yeah. There's all kinds of ways you can talk to us about it. Miss Mel, would you be kind enough to tell them what those ways are? Indeed. So you can email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can tweet us at splatterchatter666 minus all the vowels if that's just too difficult. Just spell it out. We'll pop right up. Um, you can find us on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. You can find us on Instagram at splatterchatter666. Um, you can find Mr. Craiger's blog at splatterchatter666.blogspot.com. And he will tell you where you can become a super friend of the podcast, should you so desire. If you want to be a super friend, you can head on to patreon.com slash splatterchatter666. That's where you'll find all kinds of information about the podcast. And about how you can become a donor and financially support the show so that we can achieve all the things we'd love to achieve one day. And of course, don't worry, for your monthly contributions of one, five, or ten dollars a month, we have all sorts of perks and rewards as a thank you for you, ranging from newsletters to the ability to essentially become a producer of the show and choose a topic that you would like us to cover in a future episode. That's right, an entire episode devoted to whatever you want to hear the two of us blab about. Yes. Now, if you're not in a position to show your love through financial commitment, that's totally fine. We will also take your love in the form of ratings and reviews on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud because those help us get uh, views and hits and pop up in people's searches so that other people can find our show. Now, moving forward, as we enter into March, I believe we, we, we know what we're going to do, mm. but I have to confirm with Miss Mel mm. post-episode, just in case that's not what we're going to do. So I guess <laughs> I'm not going to pimp it out right now. <laughs> don't worry. Once we nail it down, I'll pimp it out on social media. <laughs> So be on the lookout for what we're going to do in March. And in the meantime, we want to remind you guys to keep up the creep. And until next time, we will say au revoir, adios, and